Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. So, Sherry, I've got a kid on this team this year that doesn't speak a lick of English. And for our listeners that aren't picking up on the reference, I coach high school soccer. And I have for many years. And this this new team that, that we've just, uh, we just finished tryouts. And this new team, um, I've got a kid that, uh, I, I'm not sure of his ethnicity exactly. I'm not sure what country he's from. But he speaks Spanish and doesn't speak a lick of English. And, I, and I've had this situation before. The, the high school in our neighborhood, we're very blessed to be in a very, very diverse population uh, of high school students. And there's a ton of refugee kids and kids that are from other countries for a variety of reasons. And English as a second language is very common. No English at all is pretty common. But I've always had a translator. I've always had another kid on the team that was bilingual. Oh, you don't have a bilingual kid? I don't year? have a bilingual kid. Does our son not remember any English, or is it bad because he's a goalie? Our <laughs> son remembers English. Our son. I mean, it's Spanish. No, <laughs> he takes Chinese, which is good for him, I suppose, and I think he enjoys it. But it's not helpful in this particular situation. But he took four years of Spanish. Yeah, it's it's of no help. Oh, boo. so but that's okay. I, I am confident that I'm going to find a way to communicate with this kid because, Sherry, I've been married for 23 years. So if anyone can work through communication issues, it's someone who's been married for 23 years and are has you, lots of experience. Are you trying to say, like, women are from Mars and or Venus and men are from Mars? Like, we are yes, aliens, you, we don't speak the same English language? You only English speak language. Venetian. <laughs> yeah. That's right. No, I, I just... I know that communication is a struggle in relationships, not just our relationships. I think that's universal. In every relationship, communication is a struggle for a variety of reasons. And it's something that I have far from mastered. I am not a pro at communication, but I've got enough experience that I think with some hand gestures and, uh, you know, acting things out, I'm going to, I'm going to be able to Get, get through to this yeah. kid and it's going to work out. Yeah. I'm not scared. I am not afraid. And I have that all, I owe all of that to you, Sherry, because of our 23 years of marriage. So today we're going to talk about communication mistakes. What do we do? Not it, We'll use our relationship for examples for sure, but with, with all the different couples that we talk to and communicate with and work with in our Echoes of Recovery group, um, we see... Time and time and time and time again, communication is, if somebody, if if you said, Matt, you know, you've got to pick one thing as the biggest issue that makes relationships in recovery from alcoholism difficult, I, I would not hesitate to say I think communication is the top, the top thing. There's, there's lots of reasons that recovery from alcoholism in a relationship is really hard. But communication's got to top that list. What What do you think, Sherry? Would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, because communication has, like, so many layers and levels. And you think about your past, your communications that have gone awry when they've been drinking or hungover or post-argument. Like, it just is a nightmare. Almost to the point, like, for me, since I like to shove things down and shut down, I'd rather not communicate. 
Yeah. Just go about my business. You go about yours. We talk about what, you know, plans are for the kids or whatever, a few big things. But, yeah, I can see that's that's hard. Yeah. Communication is terrible. Well. A, in a new, you know, kind of marriage of discovery. Yeah, I've been I've been thinking a lot about communication. And I made a list of what I think are the seven common communication mistakes that we made slash still make some of them and that the people around us uh, struggle with as well. So let's talk about them. The first one I've got on here is anger. Mm. Anyone who's done any kind of self-discovery work, any reading, uh, any research, any podcast listening knows that anger isn't in and of itself a thing. Anger is hiding something. And I think the two most common things that are, are hidden behind anger are fear and disappointment. Fear of our, ourselves, our own reactions, the person that we're with. There's something that's scaring us. And, you know, the old fight or flight instinct kicks in. And in the case of anger, we're, we're in fight mode. And the thing that's scaring us, we, we go at it. We attack it. Um, and then disappointment, you know, we get angry when we're expecting something that we think is reasonable and our expectations are not met. So for us, Sherry, I think the we're, we're much, much better at anger now. We're over four years into my sobriety and the the anger is better. It's not perfect by any means, but it's better. But the anger was just like a constant during my active addiction. And I'm curious your thoughts on the, the disappointment side of that. I think you got angry because you expected me to behave in a certain way. And then I drank and behaved poorly. And that pissed you off, didn't it? Yeah. Um, I definitely feel like my anger was fear and disappointment. But the disappointment, I think, came from both sides. Um, like, I was disappointed in your behavior. I was disappointed that I had expectations of you. I was disappointed in myself for maybe um, thinking that you were something that you were not. Mm-hmm. Um, like that vision of the kind of man that you thought I was yeah. when we first got together? Yeah. Yeah. So disapp- I can't imagine how disappointing that was. Disappointment in myself. So then... The easiest way to deal with all this, and I grew up in a household where there was a lot of that, like, retaliation and anger. Because my parents were divorced, and when they would get together and, like, try to discuss things, or if if my dad called or something and he was drunk, like, it was just all anger, and there was no resolution. Um, And I didn't see any sort of, any other side of it. And, of course, course I was a kid, so my mom didn't, like, talk about it. And then we just didn't talk about anything when I was an adult or before I was going to marry you, so... I think I had disappointment in myself for the expectations and the expectations I put on you. And I was disappointed that you weren't, you were being you and you were being you under the influence of alcohol in a lot of the ways. So disappointment all around. Disappointment all around is right. I, I got angry a lot too when I was drinking and I think that stemmed from my own disappointment in myself too, because you know, alcohol is a depressant and sure there are times when we drink to celebrate and it, it, you know, makes the party, uh, partier, more partier, which is not English at all. Um, but yeah, there, there were times when it was an upper in, in reality and the way I was using it, but 
often when I drank, especially like on Sunday afternoons when I drank and the, the stress of the work week was looming, I would get really disappointed. I'd get disappointed in, you know, the things I had to face, the, the mistakes I had made, the amount of alcohol that I had drank. And it would be, I was like a powder keg. It would be super easy to set off a fight and get me angry because I was mismanaging my own disappointment in my own decisions and my own actions. And so anger was just, it was so close to the surface anytime that I was moping around in sadness and disappointment. The thing I think that helps us to move past the anger is to listen to our instincts. So if we will universally agree that anger isn't a thing, anger is hiding something, we've got to listen for the thing anger is hiding. So if we are afraid of something or or we are disappointed in ourselves, we've got to address that, address the disappointment. You know, roll up our sleeves and get in there and not just wait until the disappointment and fear builds to the point where we're set off in anger. So this is a, it's, it's a practice that takes, takes time. It takes time, um, to get good at understanding what's below the anger, what's really causing it. And then, um, you know, dive into fixing that thing. I think anger is, you know, it's common in all parts of a relationship in recovery, but it's certainly in our case. And I think in many, it's more prevalent when alcohol is still present during the active addiction phase. There's just so much more to be angry about during that phase. And so this is another opportunity for us to say, you've got to blame the alcohol. Romantic love, deep, meaningful romantic love and alcohol, they just can't coexist. And so anyone who's in the stage where they're trying to get their loved one to quit drinking or their loved one is trying and failing at quitting drinking, that anger, it, it's it's much more difficult to manage and to remove from the the miscommunication of the relationship when the alcohol is still present. At least when the alcohol is gone, you got a fighting chance at dealing with what's under the anger instead of the anger because the anger is so much tied to the dysfunction of drinking. Does that all make sense, Sherry? Mm-hmm. Do you feel like we're less angry now um, in sobriety? Yeah, I I do feel like that. Yeah, anger creeps up less. It's not like you said I earlier. Just mentioned like it was under the right under the surface, and that's definitely how we felt. We were in a toxic environment with anger yeah. just right under the surface. Yeah, ready to pounce like a hungry tiger at any moment. So, uh, number two on the list of our seven communication mistakes that we and many people make, modes of communication. I think this one is huge. I think it's somewhat generational in that I think our generation, Sherry, and people older than us, probably um, modes of communication-wise, this is less of an issue. I feel like with technology, it's more of an issue for, for younger generations. And specifically in our relationship, what has gotten us in trouble in the past, we don't do this anymore at all, but hate texting. I can remember some times where like I was at work 
it was after we had stayed up all night fighting over something alcohol related or alcohol induced and then I got up and went to work and we hate texted each other all all day mm. um you know you did this and I feel this way because of you and just nasty nasty nastiness and the the problem with hate texting you're starting to giggle why are you laughing I was just going to say the reason it didn't last long for us is I'm a terrible texter. Yeah. I have like the biggest, fattest thumbs, I think, on the planet. You probably like started laughing when you would read my text where I'd be like frantically trying to text you. We should really. Lots of smell, spelling mistakes. Well, and... but we should really turn off autocorrect on your phone because <laughs> at least when the spelling mistakes happen, I can tell what you meant. But then when it autocorrects to like a completely different word, I really. Or why struggle. there's so many periods in the middle of my. Um, sentences because the period is so close to like the enter or forward button or space yeah. bar on my phone keyboard. The other, the other reason we don't hate text anymore is because you treat your phone like a community uh, apparatus for anyone. Everyone in the family knows we how to knows the code to line. your phone. Yeah, yeah, but you're like our we youngest. We stream our TV. He's Mike's car secretary, yeah. so I don't text and drive. So we can't ever, uh, I can't text anything personal, even nice personal, uh, to you because, so no little romantic love, there's definitely no sex No, I was going to say, no, no photograph. Because Andrew, our youngest, does scroll through because his friends that have phones that are older than him or, or using, you know, like they communicate text. So yeah, my phone is the community house phone. Yeah. Just like the home landline. And the remote control now. But. Yeah, whereas my kids know if they get within six inches of my phone, I start screaming at them. I, on our calls, like, I feel bad when I'm, like, trying to let somebody in on a Zoom call on your phone because I'm like, is he going to let me touch his I phone? I know. You have special privileges. You get to touch my phone mm. when we're on, hey, baby, but you want to touch my phone? Yeah. Well, texting, I think, kind of goes along with, like, emails because, you know, that's something that I think that there are people that send emails um, you know, kind of the same way. Maybe, maybe less often now think, that texting is more. I think the difference. I think that email can be a good form of communication. It can be a bad form of communication, mm-hmm. but email tends to be more thoughtful. More like, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to share my thoughts, and I'm I've calmed down from the rage I was feeling, and you know, for most people, uh, I think e- email is a more thoughtful like think about it this way when you've got to communicate with your boss if you've got something big and heavy you need to communicate you're going to send them an email if you're if you're going to say you know hey i just saw this thing that i thought was uh, interesting to the conversation we were having this morning you're going to text that so i think the danger with texting is that you don't have to calm down to do it you don't have to calm down to email but you usually do you can do it spur of the moment. You can. It can be one incomplete misspelled sentence. Um, you know, it's it's just it's like stream of consciousness. This is what I'm thinking, and I'm gonna puke it out into my phone for your uh, general displeasure. Yeah. And so that hate texting, I think, is bad. And and again, anyone can do it. Hate texting is not limited to the twenty and thirty somethings. Anyone yeah. can do it. But I just think it's a lot more prevalent from what we've seen with people. And, you know, there are people that we talk to, multiple people. I don't want anyone to feel singled out when they listen to this because we hear this a lot, who hate text when they're in the same house. So 
Maybe they've got a little kid running around under feet and they don't want to argue, so they think, I've got the solution. We won't argue in front of our child. We'll just spew vile things into our phones back and forth while we're in separate rooms in the same house. <coughs> I just think that, that that is a level of dysfunction that needs to just be eliminated. I think it's terrible, frankly. Well, and even just the going back, even if you're not like in the midst of an argument, but there is that lack of... Um, you know, face-to-face or tone inflection, and you can misread an email or you can misread a text. Yes. You can put your own spin on it because I know I'm great at that. Somebody might just be correcting me, might be in a loving way of something I did, like, at a board meeting or something, and I could take it very offensively. If I'm in the wrong state of mind, you can spin anything in an offensive way. Absolutely. That's why, like... I think that it's really cool that our kids are starting to use the phone, their phones as phones, like speaking to their friends. Because you get so much, and there is something with the power of your verbal words that would you really, like, you you just tend to be more considerate and in a lot of ways. Or you, you can't misread, really, I, in a lot of ways. I mean, you can, but no, it's I, harder to. I think you're... You're hitting the nail on the head. It's the most important reason that hate texting needs to needs to go away and just be eliminated from the relationship. Texting is for, hey, can you pick up a gallon of milk on the way home? Or I'm running late. Or what was the name of that book you were reading? Texting is not for, in, in again, in our humble opinion, not for deep, meaningful conversation, relationship conversations. And also, it's just lazy when you're texting each other in the same house I mean, my, because our, our kids sometimes do that to me. And I come screaming. I can remember our daughter who's now in college. I'll go screaming downstairs. You're too lazy to get off your bed and come upstairs and tell me what you had to say. So you texted me, you know, come on. It's just, it's just a bad look for the person that you, you're supposed to be in this loving, committed, romantic relationship with. If you can't get your ass off the couch to share what you need to share, know, then don't bother sharing it. Yeah. But there was one time that was very funny. We weren't fighting, and it was funny. And you were texting me from the bed. I think you were kind of feeling sick, and which you don't get. I'm sick a very often. bad sick person. <laughs> but so you that's don't get sick often. Possible. But you were watching something, and then you just you knew I was watching the. Maybe we were watching the same thing. We were just in different rooms, and you were relaxing and recovering from being sick. I don't remember, but it was very I funny. Probably had a splinter. Because I'm mean, a terrible sick. Because then I like got a text from you. And I went into the bedroom. I thought, did he leave? Did he, like, go on a walk? And I walked in the bedroom in there, and I was like, why did you text me? You're like, oh, I just wanted to lay here more. <laughs> I wanted to tell you that. I yeah. thought that was very funny. It is. It is. It, it can be used for fun, but it can be used as a weapon. So Yeah, don't use texting as a weapon. The, the last thing I'll say about texting is that that trail is there for the person that you've offended to go back to accidentally or on purpose weeks later and those wounds, it's like picking the scab off the wound. Mm -hmm. It's just fresh again. So if you've said something and then you've made up, if you've said it verbally, eventually with some people that memory will fade. I know with you, the memories never fade. But um, I didn't mean for that to be a shot. That was bad communication on my part. I shouldn't have said that. But um, if you've texted it, the, the trail is there for the person to go back and get re-injured by. So it's just, it's a, I love texting. I don't want to sound, I think texting is a modern marvel of all the technology that's come about. It's my favorite. I, 
I have a lot of good things to say about texting and its usefulness, but not for romantic communications in any, any way. Um, and the last thing I want to say about modes of communication being a mistake, um, the quick comment. I am the master of the quick commenter. Like saying something that I don't think is going to be hurtful, but I also didn't think it through in any way, shape, or form when I'm on my way out the door and I'm going to be gone for four hours or eight hours or something like that. I'm really good at dropping something on you and then leaving. And I, it just, it, or, or, or if you start to t- say something to me, you know, um, offering you a, a quick brush off, there was a, an issue that we actually talked about on the podcast around Christmas time. It was shortly after Christmas time. It had to do with communication with you and your sister, something she had sent you in the mail. And I made some snide comment like, oh, that's just your sister, you know, um, why don't you send it back to her or something? And then I left and I was gone. And so I left you, you, you had a plan already in mind for how you were going to communicate with your sister. And I throw like, you know, three hot pokers in, into your thought process. And then I, I'm gone. And so I just think the quick comment, the, the blow by, if you will, is just a terrible way to communicate again. I think for people like me who are prone to doing something like that, we're better off just keeping our mouth shut until we have time to sit down and make, have the discussion thoroughly or, or, or just, you know, no, no reason to throw out, um, you know, un, unwell thought out uh, shots, more or less. Even when they're not meant to be shots, they can be received as shots. Does that make sense? You've got a quizzical look on your face. Yeah, I just have, I think that you're definitely much better at that. So I was just trying to think of different scenarios um, where maybe I've done that. Um. I don't think, you know, you, as you said off the top, you are more prone to holding stuff yeah. in when you shouldn't be holding it in, when you should be communicating it. I'm more prone to just puking anything that comes to my mind. So I don't think it's an issue that we've had with you very often. Yeah. Um, yeah. But- I, and I, feel, I don't feel like that's been a big one for us, but maybe for a lot of people who are on the go more, because we, you know, um, we owned a business together. We owned a bakery together. We often were there together. Um, we were home together. I mean, the only thing that you do that's different is, is you coach soccer. So I'm trying to think, we probably don't have a lot of that in and out time away from each other where it's as much, but I can see what you're saying. Like just not just kind of being good about just not having to have an input until you can really listen to the whole, um, story or situation and maybe just walking away with saying nothing. I guess the big, the big thing to leave our listeners with on this point is our communication, our words are very powerful with our spouses. Very powerful. And I don't think we give enough credit to that. I mean, we can go to work and all day realize nobody's listening to any of our ideas or suggestions and start to feel like our words don't matter. But with the person that you love and you're committed to, our words really, really matter. And and just throwing off comments, um, assuming that they'll be taken properly without context and without the time and care that they deserve is really dangerous. We mm-hmm. can just leave leave your your spouse in a lurch wondering you know, why you said that and what you meant. So, mm-hmm. And I'm guilty of it, so that's why it made, it made the list. 
So we've talked about anger. We've talked about modes of communication. Um, if anyone's unclear of how I feel about texting, hate texting, please <laughs> please send me an email and I'll try to clarify that. Uh, distraction. Distraction is another huge communication mistake that we have made and lots of people make. Trying to, to have heavy communication when the timing is bad. Now, I want to say this and I want to be really clear about it. We deal with tons of people who say, I can never find a time to talk to my husband about his drinking. He's either drunk or he's sad from his drinking or he's about to start drinking or he's asleep or he's at work. And with those five options, none of those are good times to talk to him about his drinking. So I just don't talk to him about his drinking. That's not what we're suggesting. We're not suggesting that if it's tough to find the right time to talk to someone that you should never talk to them. That, you know, communication is so important. And just because there are ways to have bad mistaken communication, the last thing you would ever hear us suggest is that you should not communicate at all. You've got to find a time. But at the same time, there are times that are, are, are bad. You know, if, and this is one that in our relationship, Sherry, we have had lots of interactions where you bring something to me to talk to me about when I'm distracted, either I'm working, which honestly... I mean, part of the problem is I, you know, we're pretty busy and I work a lot. And so you finding a time when I'm not working is, is hard. And I need to get much better at creating times when I'm not working and shutting it down. And, and, you know, it's, I wouldn't say I'm a workaholic. I don't, you don't think that, do you? Look at that loaded question. (laughs) And then the pregnant pause. I don't think you're a workaholic. I feel like. You're working all the time, though. Hmm. Like, you can shut it down. Like, you have Sundays you pretty much shut down. But you will answer an email or answer a text, mm-hmm. you know. And and I, But I don't look at it like it's a negative. I don't look at it like it's a negative thing, like you're a workaholic and you're just spending all your time, you know, doing all this. But you'll take the five minutes to answer somebody. Yeah. You know, in a lot of our... And a lot of the work that you do, you're working with people who are struggling or have questions, so you're being considerate. Well, I will definitely work on that, because that, that, that is something that I think about a lot. And I think a lot of our listeners probably um, find that they have no free time and that they're either you know, working, and work can be the actual job they get paid for, or the work at the house, or the work with the kids, and I think a lot of our listeners can probably relate to that feeling of working all the time. Um, or, or, you know, another time that's bad is when I do take time to do something I enjoy. For instance, we're recording this in March. I'm a big college basketball fan. Um, I don't I don't watch all the sports by any means. I don't get into all the sports. I watch very little football, with, you know, America's pastime nowadays. Um, but I do like me some college basketball mm-hmm. this time of year especially. And so... I know that that's got to be a struggle for you if you've got something you want to talk to me about and I'm watching my favorite team, you know, I'm not going to listen to you when you're... But technology has made it so much easier now. Yes. <laughs> so... I can just watch that later you just whenever I want. pause it and yeah. watch it later, you know, or pick back up. But definitely, like, in the past, you know. Yeah. Um, definitely. I remember, like, when we lived in Chicago and you worked from home and you could schedule your travel and your, um, you know, going to see the different people at the still mills, like... You could kind of, you kind of intentionally scheduled around, so then you did have a lot of 
time during the beginning of the NCAA tournaments to be at home and you had that TV in your office and you would still be working, you know. Yeah. But you de- I, I definitely remember those sort of events. And then also as the partner, though, it makes me feel bad. Like, if I have something going on, and it's during your relaxing time or working time, like just this week on Tuesday, I I just got struck by something on my drive home, and I was like, I came in, and, you know, we said hello, and you were working, and you recognized that I was feeling a little sad, and I said, it's silly, but this is what I saw, and you gave me a hug, and it was, it was great. It yeah. It made me feel good. But as the partner, you feel bad encroaching upon someone's free time or work time when you're struggling you have an issue. So scheduling is good. So that's the point, right? That's the point that this um, talking when someone's distracted, either by work or by leisure or the kids or any of the millions of things that our very busy listeners get distracted by, it's hard. And we're going to talk at the end of this podcast, after we go through the seven communication mistakes, we're going to talk about one solution, something that's worked really miracles for us when it comes to communication. Um, We're going to talk more about that. But yeah, finding a way to talk when there aren't distractions, because you've been on both sides of this. I have too. When someone's talking to you and you can tell that it's a weighty issue that's really on their mind, but you're right in the middle of something you feel so torn. It's hard. I want to support you. You're my wife. I want to be there for you, but I'm also trying to finish this project. Let me finish this project. Um, so, you know, maybe my priorities are out of whack and I need to get better at just dropping things for you because you are far more important than whatever work I'm doing. Um, but it's, it's hard. And so it makes the list of communication mistakes because we all do it. We all talk to the person we love when they're distracted And it's something we've got to get better at. Next on the list of seven communication mistakes that we've made and many make, the fix-it attitude. You tell me what's bothering you, Sherry, and then just sit back and let me solve your problem for you. That does not make the person that brings the problem feel better. Um, Having this attitude that I've always got to fix whatever uh, issue exists in your life I used to be really bad about this. Makes you feel terrible, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, Definitely kind of makes you feel like you're too incompetent to work through this, so I'm going to tell you how to do it. Or it makes you feel like, okay, I don't have time to listen Mm -hmm. to all of your explanations, so I'm just going to tell you the solution, and you should do it. So. And I'll probably check back and see if you did it. And if you didn't, if you did your own thing and not my thing, I'm probably going to look down upon you for that. You know, and I don't think that happens just in, I mean, I think that, well, I have proof that that doesn't happen just in um, romantic relationships. I mean, it happens in work environments, too. Oh, all the time. Where you're like, okay, well, you came to me with this problem. I gave you the solution. You didn't do what I said. So... You know, screw you. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to offer up anymore or, you know, or they just feel like, because sometimes you just need to verbally process things to talk it out. And that solution that the other person offers is uh, kind of met with 
like frustration and uh, I then I project my like wow they must think they're really smart and then I'm like oh well don't go to this guy because he's just going to be an arrogant asshole and tell you what to do now sometimes it's valid you know if it's a situation at work or romantic situation where we've been here before and this is what we did in the past if you frame it in that this is what we did in the past and it seemed to work what do you think about that now but if, so. if you bring to me something, or if I bring a problem to you that I'm struggling with, and I've been thinking about it for hours or days or weeks, and then I tell you the situation and you give me three off-the-cuff solutions, you know, while you're, you know, you're still doing whatever, well, while you're cooking dinner, you don't even look up from the, the, the mm. stove, oh. I feel like, and then you're like, there, that solves it. I feel like, oh, well... Uh, she, you know, she didn't take much time to think about it. She must think I'm really stupid. All the things you said, it it just um, often, often we come to somebody to share our issue because what we really want is empathy. What we want is for them to say, "Oh, yeah, that sounds like a bad situation." Thanks for trusting me enough to sharing it with me. I'd love to help you talk through if you want to process it. But boy, I don't know what the solution is. And when we offer those quick solutions, it's it's painful. Mm-hmm. That's happened a lot with us with parenting. You and I have different parenting styles. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the truth is that over the years, you've had the kids talk back to you quite a bit more than I have. And I, you're a loving, caring mother. One of the things that you do that I don't do is you give the kids options. If I want... If I want a certain outcome, I tell the kid, we're doing this. We're leaving at three o'clock and you're going to have, you're going to be dressed this way and I'll meet you at the car. And you'll say, you know, the weather is going to turn colder while we're out on our hike. Uh, So even though it's warm when we're getting in the car, I want you to think about that and think about what the proper things might be to bring. And we need to be home by six. So what time do you, do you think we should leave? And when you and when that doesn't you know when that doesn't go well and you bring that to me i say well all you got to do is tell them bring this jacket and be there at 3 and you don't want to hear that because you, in many ways you're a much more nurturing parent that's much more concerned about development of our children because rather than dictate you are giving them options and helping them make the best choices and letting them suffer the consequences when they don't make the best choices, even though that pain that's painful for you. And so the last thing you want to hear when you share that with me is, Sherry, just do it my way, which I have said so many times I can't count. Yeah. It hurts when I say that, doesn't it? Yeah. I, you know, and, um, definitely with being parents of four, four different personalities. Right. Like, we thought, you know, gosh, we got it all figured out. So definitely different personalities. After the first one, we yeah. thought we had it all. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it's definitely the uh, the youngest one was the hardest yes. for us. And he is more stubborn. And so I definitely know, I've said definitely a lot. I definitely know I came to you looking for empathy. He's also a bit of a sexist. And we're not sure where that came from. <laughs> He was born a 72-year-old sexist man who thinks he has to have all the knowledge in the world. I love, love, love him. He is getting much better. Um, But I would come to you and I would struggle because I felt so exhausted, too, with him. 
It was exhausting. And I would come to you, and I, I didn't expect you to, you know, be totally empathetic because you were drinking still at this time. But the fact that you would just off the cuff give these, well, just do it this way, or just be harsher, or don't give him options. Now let me get back to my basketball <laughs> game. <laughs> you know, so I was like, I would always be flabbergasted thinking, but you know he's different. And you you have learned, and we have learned, that we have to treat each of the kids as independents. Yes. We do not have the same rules and outcomes for everybody. But Much to the chagrin <laughs> of our oldest, who thinks... Who now she's... comes home and is like, they get to just do this? Like, she still asks before she gets food out of the cabinet. I mean, that's pretty terrible. Grown-ass woman asking <laughs> if she can have a snack. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Sounds terrible. We just we weren't that abusive. We were just very regimented in a way. I mean, we had rules, and well, but she's a rule had, follower. We too. hadn't yet been defeated. We were still <laughs> we were still the uh, we were still in charge when she was a teenager. And yeah. Now we've lost control somewhere along the lines. She's definitely a rule follower, and she likes to continue following the rules. And she's very respectful. She's very respectful of her parents. Where sometimes I feel that the boys are not always respectful of me um but when you made the scenario of me cooking dinner and then off the cuff you just throw me three things i just thought of that that set that that implants in your brain it you just don't remember it. it's like implants itself into this memory bank of they don't really care about the situation the outcome they obviously haven't heard my side of the right the scenario they don't understand where I'm coming from, and they just think they're a know-it-all. Yes, which I have been accused of more than once. Accurately Not accused of. Just by once. me. Accurately accused of. Yes. So it's not just a memory; it's implanting on us. Yeah. Especially if that advice comes from the person who's the drinker, because in the loved one's mind, there's this oh. You can solve everybody else's problems, but you can't solve your own. Which is, it's an elusive observation to the drinker at the time. Mm -hmm. I was very arrogant as a drinker. I didn't, I think, I thought I drank like everybody else does. You're the one with the drinking problem. Let me solve your problems and then get out of my way so I can go back to drinking. Well, let me solve your problem so then you'll see that I don't have a problem. Maybe that's what you were. Yeah. I don't know. Somewhere in there. Yeah. I'm not sure that that, it was ever that well thought out. Um, that I was trying to hide my problem by solving your problem. I just didn't think I had a problem. Like, yeah. everybody drinks sherry. What's wrong with you? Yeah, I go too far sometimes. Get off my back. Um, but but yes, I think, the impor- I think you make a hugely important point, and that is when you talk about those things that get implanted, the kind of overriding word for that is, or, or phrase for that is, you are made to feel like you are not very important. Right? I can solve your problems. You're not smart enough to think this through yourself. You're just Mm -hmm. not that important to me. Yeah. And if it happens time and time and time again, just like with any of these issues and all the many other issues. So this is one of the many things that I didn't learn from, like, experience and then I just naturally got better at. This is one of the many things that I learned from some outside source, something I read or something someone told me or a podcast I listened to. I honestly can't remember. But there's all kinds of resources out there that'll tell you when someone brings you their problem, just be a good listener. The best thing you can do is to be a good listener. 
if you want to get into some troubleshooting down the road and so let, let's let's look at the possible things you can do then that that's fine if you're invited into that segment of the conversation but the first thing you do is just be a good listener and tell them yeah that sucks i'm mm-hmm. sorry you're going through that I can tell you one of those resources. What's that? Me. I remember saying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I sometimes really just need you to listen. Yeah. yeah. But it definitely is very validated when it is over and over and over and over again said in, yeah. d- in many different aspects and different relationships and, you know, just listen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So don't just be a fix-it master. Not helpful. Another on our list of seven communication mistakes is not considering the traumas of the person's past. Now, on last week's podcast episode with Catherine Craig, who is a wonderful therapist and friend, one of the things she she's just she's got so much to offer. If you haven't listened to that one, I hope you go back and do. But one of the things that she talked about was, and we 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 agreed with her. We all talked about is let's don't downplay the traumas that we have experienced and that the people that we're close to have experienced. I think far too often, unless it's a rape or uh, a physical abuse situation where you were beat almost to death, we downplay our own traumas and say, oh, you know, yeah, I went through this as a kid, but it could have been worse. I I still had plenty of food and clothes and a a roof over my head. So I'm just going to, you know, what do I have to complain about? There's Mm -hmm. so many people that have it worse. And I think that's just a really bad setup for if we want to have good, healthy communication in our relationship. If you were ignored as a kid, if your parents had too much going on, if you were in a house with a workaholic um, and, you know, your stuff never, never seemed to get the attention that it deserved, you were neglected. And that neglect is going to play into your needs as an adult and how you communicate. So if you're not used to being listened to, it's going to make you bad at speaking up when you've got something you need to talk about. And as the spouse of somebody in that situation, I need to be in tune to that. And I need to, when I'm talking, I need to communicate in a way that makes that person feel safe to share the things that they want to share. So if I'm, if, if, if to bring this into our specific situation, our specific marriage, Sherry, if I'm someone who is really bold and never lets a thought go unspoken and feels comfortable talking to you no matter what the situation, no matter what you're doing, you know, I can't expect the same of you. And I, for many, many years did. If you would hold something in and you wouldn't tell me about it until it got so frustrating to you that you blew up about it, I would say, what the hell is wrong with you? Why didn't you talk to me about that? Two weeks ago and every day for the last two weeks, why have you ignored that? And my lack of appreciation for the fact that maybe you didn't have a voice earlier in your life and that being given a, a place where you can feel safe to talk, is a, it's a novel concept to you. It's, it's new and uncharted. And so, so, so many times in relationships, that's part of the problem. We're married, Sherry. Just tell me what you're thinking. Yeah. Why are you holding that back? Yeah, Not that, fair. That's definitely something that I didn't notice or think about until six or seven months ago. The concept is like attachment, and that's how you were parented. 
like yeah. you said, and then you bring that in relationship. And I know, I know what my style is, and it's one where every no, I didn't have, feel I had the emotional availability of my parent to listen, and then bringing it into an alcoholic relationship and marriage where I also looked to you, like in my eyes, you were like the smartest, most motivated go-getter of all the guys that I knew and dated. And um, that's why I chose you. So I put my feelings and my voice on the back burner in the beginning. And then you add alcohol and alcoholism and the fights. And you, yeah, you just can't say what you want to say when you want to say it. Yeah. Because of fear and worry and then that turns to anger. Absolutely. Yeah, and so. so so my job in that scenario has to be appreciating the traumas of your past, all the stuff that I know about, and trying to create the safest possible place for you to communicate without judgment. And, and it goes both ways. In our specific situation, you know, you talked about that I was motivated and a go-getter. I grew up in an environment where work was highly, highly, highly valued. I mean, I remember when I left for college, um, you know, I was basically told in no uncertain terms, you will not come back here with more than one suitcase for a visit. Like, you are not moving back in here. You're going to go figure this out, get a job, get an education, get a job, make money, and that is of the highest priority. And so, even to this day... I mean, we've moved, you and I have together moved way far away from, um, you know, financial success being a measure of whether a person's a good person or not, which is good because we run a nonprofit and there's no, you know, that's not a thing we want to measure ourselves against. But so, yeah, money and power are no longer really a part of our, our measurement system. But I still, as you talked about 15 minutes ago, still work a lot. That's still a drive in me from from childhood of especially in you know we were raised in the seventies and eighties um, you know the man goes to work and works real hard all day and works extra if he has to and provides for his family and so that mentality even even as open minded as I am on a conscious level there's still a subconscious piece of it that says mm-hmm. nope you can still get a few more things done if you really if you really want it bad enough yeah and so communicationally that causes problems and you have done I think a stellar job of considering the impact of my past and the way I was raised and and this this need and this drive to provide for the family um and you understand that and don't you don't make me feel bad about it so when you like you said earlier that I work all the time but you don't make me feel bad about about it even though I know I need to I need to get a get more balance going. Yeah. Well, when you said that it was the partner's responsibility too to try to learn that it's hard for some people to bring their voice into conversations. It's as equally hard and it may take a long time because you've had, you know, 35 years of not feeling that you can speak up and even in a safe environment, you may not recognize it right away because you're just so used to your brain is just so used to saying it's okay if you don't say anything yeah it's okay if you don't say anything because 
you know, you can just let it go or you won't think about it anymore or maybe you can talk about it later. Um, and I know there are certain thing, there are certainly things that I have wished that I could have felt, even in our recent past, wish I could have said the right way, you know, for me, like feeling like I'm saying it the right way to try to convey what I was feeling, not projecting it on you. But it's just so scary because you don't want to upset the apple cart. You don't want to open, you don't want to have an invitation for an argument in some ways. And it's not that I don't think that you're a safe, trusting place. I still have the fear and worry about the reaction or I don't feel that I have a right to say what I need. You think you're rolling into our next communication mistake which the, the the two are definitely related. Um, not you know, when I say it's my job to create a safe place for you, um, I can't fix you. We all know that you, you can't fix another human. You can't you can't change their behavior. But I can I can be conscious of what you're up against communicationally and make it a safe place for you as safe as possible. What you're talking about is. Um, when, when your communication just comes from an untrusting place. I think this is what you're talking about. And this was next on the list of communication mistakes. If you are constantly waiting for a bad reaction from me, and it's based on your past traumas, then, then that, that's hard. So no matter how safe of space I, I create... It, and and you you create a safe place for me as well. But if if you are thinking I'm going to tell Matt this thing and he's going to fly off the handle because back when he was a drinker he flew off the handle and you can't you can't get that um, that vision out of your mind. It's difficult. And this is you know we talk all the time. This stuff just takes time. You have to replace bad memories with good ones. And I'm not I'm not blaming you. I want to be real clear about that. I'm not blaming you for for coming at communication from an untrusting place. Trust has to build. But we even have relapses, even even as trust has built in our relationship and gotten so much stronger, we still have those occasional relapses where you just can't get the bad thought out of your head that that I'm going to say something nasty if you if you tell me what you're really feeling. Is that what you were talking about? Yes. Um and it kind of ties in, but not everything has to be a trigger from something that happened during the alcoholic days. It could be that I am doing something that we have talked about and it makes you feel bad, or I'm going to try this new thing and then I don't follow through with it and we've talked about it. So it's like even a revisited discussion that has been non-alcoholic. I think, again, I think it's just so implanted and ingrained in what I'm used to that it's that's what makes it hard. So, I, let's you know, like if I'm not following through with my new dietary plan and you say, oh, I thought you were going to cut out, you know, this because you see me eating it. Not like in a bad way, but if we're discussing it or um, like the Valentine's Day candy that I brought home. You know, you're like, I thought we weren't bringing any sugar. And I was like, well, this was left over from the thing I did at church. And you're like, there's always going to be an excuse, you know. There's always, And I was like, oh, okay. 
it's Valentine's Day and give it to the kids and you know, and I got a box of thing from my boss. And so it just, you know, like it's those little things that then make you fear the reaction. And it wasn't meant in, there wasn't a big argument. It's just, that's how I was brought up. That's what I lived through. So I think it's both the untrusting, but it's also untrusting of yourself to communicate properly. And you don't, trust your feelings enough and you don't trust yourself enough to say what it is you need to say and ask for what you want or how it makes you feel because you're also worried that you know I know this is a victim mentality but I'll say oh I knew I couldn't say it right enough I couldn't say it good enough for you you know even though I thought about it you know So I think that it's a mistrust of how you're going to respond and stand up for yourself or express yourself. You're worried about your own inability to do that and you're worried about the reaction of the other person. Yeah. And so the way that manifests in our relationship sometimes is you'll, you'll, and and help me because I'm, I'm mostly understanding what you're saying, but you'll you'll hold that thought for a long time, working it through in your head because of the fear, because you can't trust yourself and you can't trust me. And you'll hold on to that until the fear and anger around it builds. Mm-hmm. And then when you do talk about it, sometimes it feels like, I'm like, where did this person come from that's, that's mad about that, something that I'm not, not even aware of yet? Yeah. Does that make sense? Is yeah. that how it builds in your head? Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, certain issues, like the whole like chocolate for Valentine's Day, I kind of blew that off. I was like, yeah, you know, I said I wasn't going to bring extra sugar into the house. Added sugars. Yeah. Added sugars, you know, into yeah. the house. So the chocolate hearts, yeah. I could have left those at the church and off my church office and people would have picked away at them. But then they would also have been there and picked away at them. So at least if I dump them off on my kids... Yeah, You know, and sometimes you can rally from that. It doesn't have to hold and fester. Or you can just be like, yeah, you're right. I did say I wasn't going to bring in added sugars in the house. And, and I did, and I made a mistake. And, and you know, but it doesn't I, I'm going to get defensive fester. here for a second, but I, I feel a little backed into the corner. This was not about me being worried that you were going to eat them and, and gain weight. It, no, I, no. I, I started just... picking on those cinnamon hearts the second they walked in the house because yeah. I love those cinnamon hearts. So it was more like, hey, if it's not in the house, I won't eat it. So stop bringing it in the house. And, and the comment about there's always going to be something. There is. There's, yeah, because the cinnamon hearts. We still hearts, had that leftover the cinnamon hearts stale were... Christmas cookies. And then here comes Valentine's Day. And then, I don't know. There's a whole bag of dum-dum sitting around that nobody wants to eat anyhow because we had to buy a huge bag for two dum-dums for something it's like from halloween to to (laughs) valentine's day if there's not you know it's constantly there yeah that's what i meant i didn't mean to tell our listeners that you were worried that i was going to gain weight i'm also with you the cinnamon hearts was a gift from someone else and they came in the house and i was like holy crap cinnamon hearts i love those and eat them until your mouth's on fire i know by the fistful it's like a challenge (laughs) like how many can i get 10 in there yeah which cheek will burn the most so I, and that's what I knew too, because we had had a conversation about that. And that's why I took, now I did take those and, and I left some of the candies for my staff, um, you know, uh, that I work with. So 
I didn't mean that. I just meant like, yes, you're right. There is always something and I could blow it off because I know that you weren't worried about me eating them. I was worried if they were at my church office where I could see them and knew they were there, I would eat them then. So that's why I brought them. But Well, thank you for indulging my defensive reaction there to, like I said, I felt like, oh God, I got to say something to defend myself, but I don't want to sound defensive. So I just admitted that I was going to sound defensive. But yeah, so I I think we, this is as, as our listeners I'm sure can tell, this is a, a raw one. This is of the seven communication mistakes. This is one that you and I still struggle with this, this trusting each other, um, you know, waiting for the bad reaction that's happened in the past, not trusting ourselves. It's hard. It's, it's not an easily solvable communication issue. Just to blindly trust the person that you're with is really difficult. Well, and then you just add in the layers of upbringing and differences, and then you add in the layer of the drinker. Maybe doesn't always remember the bad reactions. They weren't always conditioned and understanding of the other side of it. Yeah. So it's layered upon layered upon layered, and I really struggle to get through this, so. The last on our list of, um, of the seven communication mistakes is blame. The way we say things, this is something that you and I used to be guilty of that I don't think we do nearly as much anymore. Um, but, you know, telling someone, you you make me feel bad or, or some version of that. Um, it's really subtle to say this thing happened and here's how I feel about it. I feel bad about it as opposed to you make me feel bad. That's a subtle difference. But it's a big deal, especially when you're in the middle of communication challenges and nothing seems to be going right and you just don't seem to be able to find a way to talk. Um, One thing that I work really hard to keep in the back of my mind at all times is, Sherry, you would never hurt me on purpose. You might hurt me in reaction to me hurting you. You might hurt me accidentally, but you love me. We got married for a reason. You would never set out to hurt me. And if I can keep that in the back of my mind, it helps me to communicate with you better and not blame you for things and realize that if you've if 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 you've done something um, that's caused me turmoil, I know you would never cause me turmoil on purpose. And so communicating you to to you about that in a way that doesn't make you feel like you're at fault in my eyes is really, really helpful. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um I also, it, it made me think, a lot of the times during our terrible arguments, I and you were drinking, and I knew that you wouldn't always remember, I'm sure that it was somewhere ingrained in your brain and you have some sort of unconscious or of subconscious memory of knowing when I was intentionally saying things to hurt you uh, or not. And I think yeah. once you get out of that pattern and you yeah. get away from the blaming, um, that helps a lot and then that's also transferring the blame to the alcohol um, for our listeners because they're dealing with alcoholic people in their lives so transferring the blame to the alcohol that's hard and necessary and necessary yeah mm-hmm. absolutely trying not to blame each other so so our seven communication mistakes uh, anger what does it really mean uh, think about the modes of communication, texting, boo, uh, distra- <laughs> distraction, trying to talk to someone when they're otherwise occupied, 
having that fix-it mentality, not considering the traumas of the person's past, and being untrusting of the person we're communicating with, and then blame, making the person feel blamed. Those are our seven mistakes. Now, here's our solution. Here's the solution that works for Sherry and I, and that we strongly encourage people to, to employ in their relationship to make communication a little bit better. Set a weekly meeting. Now, we explain this to people all the time. And when we explain this to people, they're like, yeah, yeah, what else you got? Like they blow us off. Like, yeah, we've tried that. It didn't work. This has been life-changing for you and I. And it wasn't a a unique original concept. Somebody that I used to play soccer with actually suggested it to us. (coughs) He did it in his relationship and we tried it. And it has worked, literally worked wonders for us. Miracles. And we did it while you were still drinking. Yeah. And and I will say... I'm not going to say that it made it better. I definitely think it helped. It helped ease, ease some of the tension and the stress that I was feeling. Now, I didn't like it at first because I don't like to communicate. Yeah. It alleviated some of that tension and that anger, that undersurface anger. Because we knew what we were going into. Yeah. We knew that that talk was important. We were going to deal with some shit. We took some time to deal with it. We scheduled it. We were prepared mentally. That's exactly why it works, Sherry, because it's scheduled. It's on your calendar. It's on my calendar. We prioritize it, and I know it's coming. And if I've got things I need to talk to you about that I haven't found a good time to talk to you about, when you wouldn't be distracted, for instance, um, or you've got things that you wanted to talk to me, you haven't been able to find a time when I wouldn't be distracted, you can save those up. But not, not, we're not talking about pushing them down and never addressing them. You just got to, next Thursday is our time. I just got to make it to Thursday and then I'll get an audience. And I will say that even when we did it when you were drinking, you were not drunk or drinking at that time. Yeah, that's important. Like it was the, it was a sober time frame. Yeah. You couldn't have been doing it before. You maybe, you definitely went and drank afterwards, but you were not previously drinking before. Uh, So we made it a time where, yes, we had to look at our week and know when you would drink. And that was just Sunday afternoons uh, around lunchtime worked for us. So, But prioritizing it is so important because it, if, if it's just showing respect. And if you start a conversation with respect for each other, you've, you've got a, a ton of opportunity for that conversation to go well, as opposed to starting it with disrespect for each other. So... When I say we scheduled it, we we have we have the day has moved over the years, but we've always had a day that we're going to have this conversation and we we establish a time. Like you said, lunchtime on Sunday, good example. Now, if Saturday comes or Sunday morning comes and one of the kids has an event or whatever, we can move that time. We can sit down with our calendars and say, "Hey, noon doesn't work for me. How about three o'clock? I'll be done with the with the basketball game I'm taking one of the kids to." Um, so it's not an immovable object, but it has to be just like you would with a with a work colleague. If you schedule a meeting and the meeting has to change, both of you schedule it. You don't just say, oh, let's blow it off because we don't have time this week. You have to prioritize it. You have to find a way to make time. Super, super important. Wouldn't you agree, Sherry? Yes. One of the mistakes we've made over the years is at times we've said, oh, well, we had a lot of time to talk this week. So we're just not going to do our meeting because we, we talked throughout the week. No. It's got to, you got to do it. Yeah. And I know it's hard during the holidays. Sometimes you're super busy or whatever season is busy for you and you can blow it off for a couple weeks. You just got to reschedule it 
at a different time. It's got to be prioritized. And it, that mutual respect is the, the key and the highlight to the prioritizing because each person has a chance to feel like they're really going to be heard. Now, sometimes, uh, you know, you and I can have this conversation in 20 minutes. Sometimes it takes three hours. Um, so scheduling wise, that can be difficult. But you, you've got to set a time, put it on the calendar, and then and then allow time on the back end for the conversation to take its course. For you and I, we give each other a chance to talk. And when you are telling me what's bothering you, it's not. It's usually not things that I've done that are bothering you. It's just things that you're dealing with. Um, you express those. I express the things that I'm dealing with. And we listen to each other. We don't just try to solve each other's problems. We listen to each other. Yeah, that really sucks. Um, do you want to talk about potential solutions? Do you want to brainstorm with me? No, you don't. You just, okay, fine. I'm glad you had a safe place to to get this off your chest. Um, it, it, it's so important just to be respectful of each other and to understand that the things you're saying, Sherry, are not digs at me. You're not just telling me all the things that you hate about me and I'm not telling you all the things I hate about you. You're telling me the things that are bothering you, and I'm going to share with you the things that are bothering me. And you've, we've got to work really hard to not internalize those as, you know, I'm just getting dumped on for all the mistakes yeah. I've made this week. And also, don't take offense when you start to do it. If maybe the one of you are bringing notes into it, maybe it's just yeah. jotting down, like, this thing happened and I want to talk with them about it. or um, So then you don't forget, because I have a tendency to forget things that I want to talk to you about. We have a lot of people that say they've tried practices like this and it always spins off the rail. It ends up in a big screaming, yelling fight and then we don't speak to each other for a week. Okay, I get that. Here's the suggestion that we make as it relates to that. Start small. Each of you bring into the conversation one thing. One resentment. One thing that's bothering you that's occurred during this last week. One thing, and it doesn't have to be something your spouse did. It can be, you know, my boss didn't give me the time of day when I brought a problem to him this week, and that really hurts. Mm -hmm. And then you as the spouse say, that sucks. I wish that didn't happen for you, and I hope it goes better the next time you try to bring something to him. That's all it has to be. And you each get one thing to get off your chest. The other person responds to it. And maybe the next week you try two things. Or, and, and maybe it starts out as... Or a bigger thing. Yeah. Maybe it starts out as five minutes from each of you. Here's my five minutes. Here's your five minutes. There, we had a 10-minute conversation. We didn't chew each other's faces off. That's better than normal. Let's try again next week. It can build from something small. If your communication is so stunted and terrible in your relationship, you know... Let's be more, let's be cliche. Rome wasn't built in a day. Yes, don't revert to texting at each other. There, we had our five minutes each. Now let's go hate text each other in the corner. Um, Let it be something that builds slowly over time because the trust component is huge. You have to feel like you can say something without having it rammed back down your throat. And you also have to give your partner the respect of listening to their thing without trying to solve it and fix it for them and feeling like, They were just dumping the stuff that they have to blame you for on you. So communication is hard. That's the end Mm -hmm. lesson. But don't give up on it. And and don't blow Sherry and I off when we talk about this 
weekly meeting like, yeah, what else you got, Wonder Twins? You know, <laughs> thanks. Thanks for that stupid well, idea. Well, considering the what person that we used to do it on the front porch and now I can't stand our front porch because it had negative connotations Okay, that's a, that's a it, side effect. You yes. know, that's why we like, you know, but we, we pressed through, we did it. And that's why we're suggesting, because of based on experience, it's not just a blame fest. And don't go out there thinking you're going to sit there for hours on end and solve every freaking problem. Yeah. Because we tried it after some times, or we would have talks on the porch after fights, and it didn't work. Yeah. Because we were trying to bring too much to the table at once. Yeah. And it's really hard to smile and wave at your neighbors (laughs) when, uh, when you're arguing on the front porch, so... Yeah, how you communicate the seven things that we suggested that we avoid in communication has been huge for us. Um, but don't don't let them be excuses just because they're difficult to not do it at all. Uh, and I know you th- you think, man, I'm in this loving marriage. I shouldn't have to schedule time to talk to my spouse. That should come naturally. It should, but guess what? It doesn't. I don't know relationships where it comes naturally. You got to work for it. So. We hope, uh, we hope that you take our suggestion and don't just blow us off about our weekly meetings. They are a big deal. And if your spouse doesn't think they're a big deal, the first thing you need to do is talk them into spending 70 minutes of their life listening to us talk about this. Um, and maybe they'll think it's a big deal too. Maybe not. Uh, but we wish you the best of luck. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.